Emily Post. Who knows Emily Post? Emily Post, back in 1922, wrote a, a book titled Etiquette. And, and this book, Etiquette, has been described as America's definitive guide on all things manners. Uh, there is an Emily Post Institute, which has been run by five generations now of family members of Emily Post. And uh, the, the book, this book, Etiquette, is in its 18th edition. Uh, there is a family member of Emily, I don't know how far down the line it is, a woman named Peggy Post, who said this. She said, manners are a sensitive awareness of the feelings of others. If you have that awareness, you have good manners no matter what fork you use. I love that because I never know. Like, which fork to use? They, they all seem to do a good job. If you have that sensitive awareness of others, that's what leads to good manners. This morning, we're going to continue our sermon series, Come to the Table, and what we're going to be doing today is we're going to be eavesdropping on a meal that Jesus had in the home of a prominent Pharisee. We're going to drop in through the scripture and, and find out uh, a little bit about hospitality, God's style. Because what we're going to see in this meal is that, that that sensitive awareness of the feelings of others was sorely absent. Now, here's what's so cool about the scripture that we're going to read, Luke chapter 14. It's still in its first edition. It's in its first edition, and we get to read it. So if you want to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 14, or uh, you can follow along on the screen uh, above me. Luke chapter 14, and let me um, pray for the reading of God's word. Uh, Father God, we thank you that you have given us your word, and it is timeless. Uh, Lord, it applies to our life just as much today as it did when it was first written. Uh, open our, our eyes and our, our ears and our hearts to uh, the truth that you have for us today. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our heart be pleasing and acceptable to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to work our way through this passage. Luke chapter 14. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. There in front of him was a man suffering from dropsy. Jesus asked the Pharisees and the experts in the law, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. So taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him away. And then he asked them, if one of you has a son or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull him out? And they had nothing to say. So we're going we're gonna to pause there. One Sabbath. In Hebrew, the word Sabbath is Shabbat. One Shabbat. And the, the Shabbat, of course, is the, the faithful Jewish um, family's um, observance of the fourth commandment. The fourth commandment and the ten commandments observe the Sabbath day and keep it holy. And so this ritual meal, this ceremonial meal that Jesus has been invited to was one of the ways that a, 
uh, a faithful Jew would honor the fourth commandment, would honor Shabbat. Uh, now, I've got a, a little bit of a spoiler alert. You've heard us talking a lot about the chosen. And, and uh, if you are not doing small groups, I still want to encourage you, um, watch the chosen. Uh, it is so good. But here's the spoiler alert. In the second episode, so not the one we're going to be watching tonight, but the one we'll be watching um, throughout the next couple of weeks. In the second episode, it's titled Shabbat. A and it's all about this ritual meal, this observance of, of the Sabbath. And in that episode, there are two Shabbats going on. There's one that's going on in the home of a prominent Pharisee named Nicodemus. And there's another Shabbat that's going on in the home of Mary Magdalene, who at that time was just a, just a normal uh, Jewish woman wanting to honor God. These are two Shabbats, and the words that are spoken at both of those homes are the exact same words. There's a, a ritual, there's a ceremony associated. The words are, are the exact same words, but the atmosphere in those two different homes couldn't be any more different than it was. In the home of Nicodemus, the, the prominent Pharisee, everything was very, very precise. It was perfect, and it was just a bit cold. If you understand what I'm saying, just a, a bit cool. The, the feeling was cool. It was the best dinnerware. It was the, the finest furnishings. Nicodemus performs the, the ceremony flawlessly. Everybody is dressed in the finest clothes. There's a, a sense of dignity and pride that just kind of permeates the air. To be invited to Shabbat with such a prominent Pharisee, this was an incredible honor. Uh, in the other home, in Mary's home, there's this warmth that's absent in the home of the Pharisee. The ceremony is not performed flawlessly by the host, but there are smiles and there's laughter around the table. There's still a sense of reverence. There's a sense of formality in this home, but it's not the type of reverence that we would call threatening. It's actually a, a more uh, uh, inviting, welcoming reverence. It's a reverence, uh, the scripture that, that Nate wrote, come to me, Jesus says. It's that kind of reverence where, where you are welcome and I want you here. So I've thought a, about this as a question. This would be a great question for small groups. If you had the opportunity to go to either one of those Shabbats, which one would you choose? to go to Nicodemus's or to go to Mary's? And the answer to that question is probably depending on what you're after. If what you're after is, is status, you know, to maybe elevate your status in the social order, to, to be able to have a story like I ate at the home of, of Nicodemus. If you're after your, your recognition, reputation, you're probably gonna choose that home. So, so that is all, of course, that's an imaginary uh, description, uh, but I think it is a lot, uh, it's very similar to what we're reading today. Uh, Jesus is in the home of a prominent Pharisee. He's unnamed. We don't know who this Pharisee is, but he's a prominent Pharisee, which means he's probably part of the ruling class, the Sanhedrin, which is at the top of the, the religious ladder. 
So this is a very, very important man. He's at the home of a prominent Pharisee. To be invited into this home would, would be a, a, a tremendous honor. And everyone's going to be on their best behavior. No doubt the rules of etiquette are being followed flawlessly. The right fork is used at the right time. But that sensitive awareness of the feelings of others, we're going to see, is noticeably absent. Jesus has been invited as a guest in the home of this prominent Pharisee, but it becomes immediately clear that he's really not truly welcome. It's not, not uh, true that he's actually wanted to be there because we read this little detail, Jesus is being carefully watched. He's being carefully watched. Essentially, what Jesus is doing is he's on trial. This is a meal where Jesus is on trial. Every action, every word that is spoken is being carefully scrutinized. The Pharisees, the experts of the law who are present, they're just hoping for Jesus to trip up, for him to screw up, for him to do something that's a violation of the law so that they can be justified in their contempt of Jesus. Have you ever had that experience of somebody looking over your shoulder? Uh, my guess is it plays out, uh, you, you screw up, right? I, I remember when uh, I was an apprentice for a, a man who was a handyman. He was teaching me, you know, some parts of the business, painting, drywall mud. And, and every once in a while, he'd stand over my shoulder and watch. And I mean, every single time I would screw up, I'd paint the wrong thing, the, the mud would, you know, go all over the place, and, and, and he was there to, to, you know, instruct me and to coach me, but it caused such anxiety in me that I know if he would just step away, I would do such a better job. This, this, the pressure of this scrutiny sometimes causes us to screw up. I wonder... Uh, about your view of God, because uh, throughout my life with God, I've struggled with uh, seeing God in a similar fashion, that he's looking over my shoulder, and that he's looking for that opportunity to say, gotcha, gotcha, I caught you tripping up. There's a, a lot of children who, that's their experience of their parents. If they were honest, they would tell you that it feels like mom or dad, they're always just watching me, and every single time I, I screw up, they're, they're, they're on me, gotcha. And it seems to them that the only affirmation that they're getting is the affirmation when they do something wrong. They, they would probably say that I, I never get caught doing things right. I just get caught doing things wrong. We might bring that same perspective to our relationship with God that he's looking over our shoulder. So, so what I know is that that God has already sent his son to die for my sins that, that I will commit later today and that I'll commit tomorrow. He knows those sins. He's already atoned for those sins. He's not looking over my shoulder to say, gotcha. He, he's a God who, with open arms, is saying, come, come to me. So Jesus is under this, this crushing scrutiny. He's being watched. Uh, he's being scrutinized. He's not a welcome guest. He's there as a defendant on trial. The trial begins when this man is in front of Jesus who has dropsy. Now, I, I just did a quick Google search. I have no idea what dropsy is. I think we might call it congestive heart failure today. 
Dropsy is a swelling of tissue related to a buildup of fluid. So the question that I have is, how did this man get there? How did this man with dropsy get into the home of this prominent Pharisee? And as I've thought about that question, I only see two possibilities. And both possibilities are, are um, frightening a little bit. The first possibility, and this one I would actually call horrifying, is that he's a prop that the Pharisees and experts of the law have actually brought this man in, not out of concern for him, but to use him like a lab rat in their experiment that they're performing on Jesus. He's a prop to test Jesus to see what is Jesus going to do with this man on the Sabbath, on this day that we're supposed to cease from work. What a, a frightening thought to, to use somebody as a pawn. This is not hospitality. So that's a possibility. The other possibility is the reason he's there is because Jesus is there, which, which sounds great. He's there because Jesus is there. He would never receive an invite to the home of a prominent Pharisee uh, on his own, but because Jesus is there, he has a sense that I'm, I'm welcome. I'm drawn to Jesus. There's healing with Jesus. And so he comes and, and Jesus welcomes him. Unlike the host, Jesus welcomes the, the sick and the lost and the broken and the hurting. Because Jesus is there, this man is there. Now, one of those two possibilities I think is true, and either one is really an indictment against the religious leaders. Whether they're using this man as a prop for their own ends with no regard for him, or whether the, he's only there because Jesus is there, he would never be there if Jesus wasn't there. Either of those is an indictment, and it's a warning to us. I know it's a warning to me as a religious leader. Uh, I want our church to grow. I would love to see every pew filled with people. I'd love to have two services. I'd love that. But I know that this desire to grow can have a very ugly underbelly. Uh, it can come to a point where you no longer see people uh, and, and see them the way God sees them. You see them as props. You see them as pawns to just like satisfy some selfish ambition that you have. We've got to check ourselves on that. Like people are, are not props in some game that we're playing, pawns in our, our master game of chess. The other warning is about the environment that we are creating together. And so we've got to ask the question, is our church one where this person would feel welcome, would be welcome? Would a person with dropsy be welcome here? Well, that's an odd question. I didn't even know what dropsy was. So let's just substitute something, uh, a few things that we do know for dropsy. Is our church one where someone who has no idea about church and what happens in a worship service, they don't know when to sit, when to stand, when to, to say this, sing that, to say amen, no clue. Would, would they feel welcome if they were here? Is our church one where someone who doesn't have maybe a real nice outfit to wear, would they feel welcome among us? Is our church one where someone who, who believes that if I come into that church, the walls are going to come down, if they enter with that assumption already, are they going to feel welcome in this space? Is our church one with... That, that person who has that last name that everybody unfortunately knows in the community, would they feel welcome in this place? 
How about this? Is our church one where that person who's a sinner and you go ahead and think of the sin that really offends you and, and put that sin on that person, would they feel welcome in this place? If Jesus is here, then the answer has to be yes. If these people are not welcome, then it may be because Jesus is not here. And, and what I have experienced is that every single church I've ever been a part of identifies itself as a friendly church. I've never met a church that says we're not friendly. Uh, every church thinks it's a friendly church. And so sometimes we can have blinders on. One of the things that uh, I find so compelling about what we're doing on Wednesday nights, uh, the table, this, this community meal, is that there are people who, for whatever reason, are not going to come to something like this. They're not going to come to a traditional worship setting. Uh, but they will come to a, a community meal. In my study uh, on, on the community meal dinner church, and this is a growing phenomenon because it's happening all over our country where, where churches are seeing numbers go down in their traditional worship setting, and so they're, they're trying other ministries, and dinner church is a huge one that is just exploding because there are people that will come to that that won't come to this. In fact, what I was reading is that in any community, doesn't matter, Fulton, Clinton, Chicago, any community, roughly 33%, a third of that community, they will not come to a, a traditional worship service. They're the people who don't show up at the, like the football games. They're not at the picnic at the parks. You don't see them downtown shopping. They're largely invisible to the community. And for any number of issues, they're isolated, there, there may be some medical issues. There might be some mental health issues. Maybe it's just there, there's some poverty. Any number of factors contribute to that, but in any community, there's a third of that community who, who are largely invisible. And since we've started our community meal, I can testify that because there are people that I see now, that I know now, that have been here the entire time I've lived in Fulton, and I never saw them before, never knew them before. And so I find what we're doing so compelling and such a great opportunity to share the good news of Jesus. So Jesus is on trial, but in his masterful way, he switches places with the prosecution. And he puts his host on trial. You tell me, he asks, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remain silent. They've got nothing to say. And you know what they're doing? They're quickly calculating, what, how can we answer that question so that we look good and Jesus looks bad and they can't come up with an answer and Jesus has no interest in playing the charade. He's not interested any longer in using this, this man as a prop. And so he, taking hold of the man, he heals him and then sends him on his way. And then he turns to his host and says, would you not save one of your animals if they fell into a well on the Sabbath? Again, silence. And the room just gets a few degrees colder. So the meal progresses, and now Jesus takes the initiative to share a couple of his observations about what he's seen happen at this meal. Next, he's going to talk to the guests of the meal. When Jesus noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. 
When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. And if so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this man your seat. And then humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. And then you will be honored in the presence of all your fellow guests. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. So in Jesus' day, an occasion like this, the Shabbat, it would have taken place in kind of a horseshoe fashion. And whether there was a table and chairs or couches, uh, there would have been this horseshoe set up, and at the head of the table would have been the host. And then on down either side would be the, the guests. And the place of honor, of highest honor, was the place right next to the host. And then on it went down, and the place of, of least honor would be at the end of the table. And so you can imagine everyone wants to be close to the host. And so these people who are invited into the home of the prominent Pharisee, what an incredible honor to be invited, but they arrive with some anxiety. And their anxiety is over the seating chart. So it's one thing to be invited in this home, but then you have to worry about where am I going to be sitting? Am I going to be sitting in the place of least honor, or, or am I going to have a, a, just a higher seat? And so Jesus is observing, and, and you can just imagine everyone is on their best behavior. Like they, they're trying to act sophisticated. They're in the home of the prominent Pharisee. They're dressed to the nines, trying to act sophisticated, dignified, but inside... They're like elementary school children trying to get the desk next to the cool kid in class, just anxious, and, and Jesus is watching them kind of jockey around for position, and so he speaks up and he essentially says, stop it, stop it, humble yourself, God will exalt you. You see, for Jesus, this social ladder, the social construct that is a place in every society we have it in our society as well. For him, the, the social construct, it works in reverse. The last, he says, shall be first. The first shall be last. If you want to be great, Jesus said, be servant of all. Humble yourself. That's what's truly great in God's eyes. And so now Jesus turns his attention back to the host. He's observed who are the people that are showing up at this meal, and he noticed they're, they're all kind of the same people. These are all people of notoriety. They're all the, the well-to-do. These are the who's who in Jerusalem that have been invited to this meal, the, the movers and shakers. And so he says to the host, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, don't invite your friends, your brothers or relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back so that you'll be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you'll be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. So was Jesus saying that we should never invite friends or family or anyone who, who is slightly wealthy to a meal Obviously, I don't think that's what the, the takeaway from this is. 
But I think what Jesus is saying is that we shouldn't only invite friends and family and people who, who are like us. We shouldn't only invite our tribe. Jesus is talking, I think, about that 33%. He's talking about that people that are our neighbors, they're in our community, those people that are largely invisible. Don't forget them. Chances of them coming to you, coming to the, the circles that you run in, are slim, slim to none. And so if we're going to live with the, the, the mission, the mandate of, of making disciples, of loving who God loves, it means we're going to have to go to them. This is my hope and prayer for our church. It's my hope and prayer for, for all of our ministries. Right now, I'm thinking of the table quite a bit. All throughout the Gospels, what we see is that Jesus actually has preferential treatment. But it's preferential treatment for the poor and the crippled and the lame and the blind. If you want to observe who it is that Jesus spent his, most of his time with, it's them. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, he said, but it's the sick. So I'll, I'll close with a, a confession, time to get authentic. Uh, I have a, um, I, I'm really drawn to, to that ministry, to the ministry of reaching the, the third. And I've got kind of this romanticized ideal of what that's like. like I think it would be so awesome that we could be a church that is is actively reaching uh, those people in our community, people that, that frankly, most churches aren't reading, reaching. So I have that as an ideal, but here's my confession. When I actually do it, it never matches up to my ideal. Uh, I find that it's messy, uh, that, that people, all people, when you get involved in their lives, it's messy, and, and it never goes as seamlessly and wonderfully as you think, and that's just the reality of ministry. If we're going to love the people that God loves, you know who we're loving? We're loving people like us who are sinners. And we arrive with our own unique mess, and, uh, and that's what God calls us to. So he calls us into the mess to, to, to be his light, uh, to be his truth. Join me as we, we pray. Lord, um, I'm so grateful that uh, you welcome sinners. Uh, otherwise, I know I couldn't be here and uh, nobody else could. And Lord, uh, help us embody that same spirit um, that you have, uh, spirit of grace and truth. And I pray that uh, our church would be a community uh, where people know that they're welcome, that they feel welcome. Um, Lord, may, may our church be a, a community of transformation. Um, not for our glory, uh, but for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.